Hi there, and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Adjusting mechanical ventilation to the specific needs of the critically ill patient is one of the dark arts of being an intensivist. Joining me today on the podcast is Ewan Golliher. Ewan is an intensivist from the Toronto General Hospital in Toronto, Canada, and he joins me today to chat about the concept of setting tidal volume using driving pressures. Ewan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Ewan, it's been established for some time that um, limiting tidal volumes in patients with ARDS has improved outcomes, but what's the mechanism behind this? Well, you know, the, the concept of limiting tidal volume arose out of trials that were done in the late 90s, and all of those trials were predicated on earlier work by people like uh, Dreyfus, uh, Webb and Tierney, and a lot of experiments along those lines that where they induced ventilator-induced lung injury by different pressures applied to the lung. So there was basically a recognition that if you stretch the lung too much, that you're causing injury. And so um, limiting tidal volume was the easiest and most obvious way to limit lung stretch. And so that's why a lower tidal volume, that's kind of where the lower tidal volume comes concept comes from. But the But the mechanism behind it that we're really concerned about is not the volume per se, but the actual stretching of the lung and overstretching resulting in injury. In a presentation that you gave to the, the Kickham ASM just recently, you talked about the concept of driving pressure. Can you tell us what driving pressure is and how that influences outcomes in this in the setting? Sure. So, so the driving pressure is the difference between the plateau pressure and the peep. And that's the pressure that's generated by the tidal volume distending the lung. And that pressure actually reflects the stress applied to the lung. If, if you put a, a large tidal volume, or if you put an, a, a small tidal volume into a normal sized lung, you'll generate very little pressure. On the other hand, if you put the same tidal volume into very small lungs, you'll generate a lot of pressure. And so the, it's the pressure that results from that tidal inflation that tells you how much you're actually stretching the lung. And so the interest in, in targeting driving pressure is that it's a better and more accurate reflection of the actual degree of lung stretch resulting from the tidal volume you're applying. And of course, when you lower tidal volume, you're going to lower driving pressure. But some patients don't get much gain in terms of reduced driving pressure when you redu reduce their tidal volume because they have very compliant lungs that are quite large and, and therefore there's very little uh, stress and strain within those lungs. By contrast, if you've got a severe ARDS patient with very small baby lung, even just reducing tidal volume a little bit can, can result in a, in a substantial reduction in driving pressure. So that just means that even though Tidal volume is the best way to reduce driving pressure. The, the actual benefit from reducing tidal volume would vary from patient to patient if driving pressure is the actual uh, driver of lung injury because of, it reflects stress and strain and, and stretch. How much do we know about what's happening at the cellular level that, or the, the tissue level that's causing this, um, this response in terms of um, driving pressure? Well, there's, there's, I mean, there's a huge body of work on, on, on this. I'm not a lung biologist. So I don't profess to have a comprehensive understanding of that literature. But the, you know, there's classic studies showing that 
um, at a cellular level, you subject individual alveoli to excessive stretch, and that will, uh, in fascinating, that mechanical stretch seems to transduce an inflammatory response and inflammatory cell signaling. So certainly, uh, you know, the, you know, these kind of issues of volume and pressure are physiological measures at a whole organ level, but but the, the the phenomenon of excessive stretching goes right down to the cellular level. It's really quite interesting. So prior to the work that you and your group have been doing around this, what is the evidence base that driving pressure is related to outcomes in ARDS? So, so up until now, it's primarily been observational nature. So there's a classic study by Marcelo Amato and colleagues published in the New England six years ago now, uh, where they showed that the association between driving pressure and mortality was stronger than the association between tidal volume and mortality. And they showed that in a mediation analysis that driving pressure mediates the, the association between tidal volume and mortality. So that, that pre- presented really the first compelling case for attending to driving pressure as a target for lung protective ventilation. And since then, there's been a number of, of important and very thoughtfully designed observational studies that show the same association between driving pressure and mortality, although not always, not every study's confirmed it. But the big problem is, is that when you show an association between driving pressure and mortality, driving pressure tells you something not only about how much you're stretching the lung, but also how sick that lung is to begin with. And it's the the stiffness of the lung, the size of the lung available for ventilation tells you a lot about the severity of the ARDS. And so it's impossible in a simple kind of observational analysis, even in mediation analysis, to tease apart just how much of this association between driving pressure mortality is a consequence of, say, ventilator-induced lung injury versus just reflecting more severe lung disease. That's That's been the challenge to interpreting these data. And which is why we were interested in trying to approach the question in a different way. Furthermore, it must be difficult to tease out the differences between limiting absolute pressure or, or capping of, um, of lung pressures um, and the influence of PEEP in terms of its difference uh, that that would impart on driving pressure. How do you go about differentiating those things? Well, in, in Amato's paper, they um, use a number of different interesting regression techniques to try and show that when you keep plateau pressure constant and very peep, the association between uh, driving pressure and mortality is significant. Whereas when you keep driving pressure constant and very peep, the association between plateau pressure and mortality is not so uh, present. So they tried to get at this issue. And I think that remains a live question of to what extent does the driving pressure versus the plateau pressure versus the peak determine uh, all these relationships. It's very, very complex system. I think, you know, probably based on a lot of animal experiments that have shown that it seems like the dynamic swings in lung stress rather than the, the maximum stress um, plays an important role in determining uh, the degree of lung injury it seems like dynamic is more important than static stress. So experimentally, I think that's um, just there's evidence to support that. And then I think a model's analysis also provides some support. But 
but uh, certainly that remains, it just highlights all these things, these variables are so tightly coupled together that it's hard to tease them apart. Coming back to something you said earlier, it sounds like the effect of reducing tidal volume would be different in different patients depending on how diseased their lungs were. And you've done some work with your group in this regard, looking at the elastance or compliance of lungs and how that influences the impact of tidal volume. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so based on what we've already been talking about, it kind of follows naturally to ask the question of whether lowering tidal volume would have a different effect in a patient with a larger baby lung versus a smaller baby lung. And they, and the, and the reason is that if you lower tidal volume in a patient with a larger baby lung, the effect on stress and strain is relatively smaller than if you lower tidal volume in a patient with a smaller baby lung where you, you're stretching the lung more with that same tidal volume. And the easiest way to assess lung volume and lung size for us clinicians at the bedside when we don't have CT scanners and all that kind of fancy research equipment is to measure elastance or, compl- or its inverse compliance. And, be- and this is because, as, as we know in ARDS, the lung is basically divided into diseased, atelectatic, collapsed, consolidated region and a relatively normal region. And so because the region that's relatively normal is made up of a you know a reduced number of lung units. The that the volume of that lung will actually basically be proportional to the compliance or elastance. So we did an analysis where we wanted to look at the effect of lowering tidal volume in those in those classic randomized trials and ask the question: Did the benefit of of lowering tidal volume on mortality differ according to the, the elastance? that the patient had approximately a baseline. And, uh, you know, we, uh, so we, you know, um, used a number of different modeling techniques to look at this question in in different ways, but the answer was pretty consistently the same. In patients with high elastance and, and, or less compliant lungs, uh, there was a large mortality benefit from lowering tidal volume. In patients with relatively low elastance or higher compliance and relatively larger lung, uh, there is a relatively little benefit from lowering tidal volume. And th- I think the, this is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it means that if a patient um, has a very high elastance, even f- six cc's per kilo may not be protective enough if the pressures that that tidal volume are gener- is generating are still excessive. And by contrast, in patients with um, relatively low elastance, if you apply a tidal volume of 8 or 10 cc's per kilo and it generates relatively little pressure, then it's probably safe to allow a higher tidal volume in that patient. That's basically the implication of what we found. You and uh, elastance, um, well, there are a number of factors involved in elastance, I suppose. I wonder whether they're all equal in this regard. Um, How do you tease out the effect of chest wall compliance versus lung compliance on those types of issues? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, So, you know, in general, on average, uh, 80% of elastance in a patient with ARDS comes from the lung and about 20% comes from the chest wall, whereas, of course, in normal subjects, it's about 50-50. So in a large population analysis like this, you know, on average, 
that that's the kind of distribution of elastins that you're going to see. But I think your point is well taken in that the real elastins of concern is the lung elastins, because that determines the, the lung distending pressure resulting from the tidal volume. And it's the lung distending pressure that we really care about. And this is especially important when we start thinking about spontaneous breathing, because now the the pressure being applied to the lung is not just the pressure that we see on the ventilator, but the pressure outside the lung being generated by the respiratory muscles. And so, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right to point out that it's really the lung distending pressure that we should be concerned about rather than, rather than total respiratory system pressure. Um, so in our analysis, in these passively ventilated patients in general, an elevated elastins will reflect an elevated lung elastins. But for individual patients at the bedside, when you're monitoring and assessing them, I think the astute clinician is going to have to work out just how much uh, of the pressure being applied by the ventilators coming from the lung uh, as part of uh, deciding what's safe and not safe. So when I go to work today, it sounds like I'm not going to be able to simply set a tidal volume and walk away. What are the implications of what we've been talking about for setting a ventilator for any one patient? Well, I think I think the the major implication is that these data suggest that the real determinant of mortality benefit from from tidal volume or mortality risk from tidal volume is how much pressure that tidal volume generates. So in addition to deciding to setting a tidal volume, we need to assess, okay, how much pressure is that tidal volume generating? So in a passively ventilated patient, I'm going to measure the driving pressure. And if that pressure is higher than 15 centimeters of water, then I'm going to be uh, concerned that there's a risk of ventilator-induced lung injury, even at that tidal volume, even if it's at six cc's per kilo. Now, of course, the question is, where do we get this magical number of 15 from? Um, and people have suggested 15 in the past be based on uh, some of the observational data. And I was always skeptical of it because I didn't think that the rationale from the observational data was su sufficient to justify that number of 15. But pretty strikingly, what we found in our analysis is that in patients with, with low elastins, um, in whom even at a tidal volume of 12 cc's per kilo, so this is the control group in ARDSnet ventilated with a, a tidal volume of 12 cc's per kilo, the driving pressure in that group was below 15 centimeters of water at that, in the low elastins patients. And in those patients, there was no difference in mortality between higher versus lower tidal volume. So that seems to suggest to me that you can use a high tidal volume and as long as the, the resulting driving pressure is still below 15 centimeters of water, the probability that you're going to do harm from that tidal volume seems very, very low. And so now I think we've got a bit firmer ground to, to pick that number and to use that as a target. I do think that we still need clinical trials to confirm that targeting 15 in everybody will improve outcomes. Um, and especially in spontaneously breathing patients where it's harder to measure driving pressure and we may need to use sedation to limit respiratory effort to control lung distending pressure. I think we need trials to sort of further establish the benefit. But as a clinician at the bedside now, I'm routinely asking my RTs or depending on where you work, your, your nurses or your physios, you know, what's the driving pressure resulting from this tidal volume and am I sure that it's safe? I think the other big thing is it's quite liberating because 
often we've had patients where they're starting to breathe spontaneously and you want to let the tidal volume uh, increase so that you can reduce their sedation and, and so on. And now, as long as the driving pressure is still low, I'm very comfortable letting the tidal volume increase to reasonable limits, say eight or 10 cc's per kilo, as long as the, the pressures remain low. Um, so I think those are kind of the practical implications. It sounds like there's some potential benefits for patients in this sense, not only in terms of avoiding harm, but potentially avoiding the complications associated with limiting tidal volume in certain patients. Would that be right? Yeah, that, exactly. That's how I see it. And my my longstanding interest has been in ventilator-induced diaphragm dysfunction and the concept of protecting the diaphragm. But to protect the diaphragm, you have to use it. And I, I you know, it's become clear from research and practice that the biggest obstacle to protecting the diaphragm and using the diaphragm is the sedation that we use to protect the lung and to keep the patient um, uh, from, uh, you know, making vigorous inspiratory efforts. So we have to, we have to find the right balance because probably excessive efforts are probably also harmful to the lung and the diaphragm. But from my standpoint, I think it's, this is, this is an important um, potential improvement in practice because it allows us to start using the diaphragm safely in patients with relatively low elastance where the pressures resulting from those efforts will be relatively low. Finally, Ewan, where do you see the transpulmonary pressure measurement with, with esophageal pressure fitting into all of this into the future? You know, I, I used to, th- I you know, if you'd asked me that question a couple of years ago, I would have said, well, in order to especially to do safe spontaneous breathing and making sure that the lung distending pressure is not excessive during spontaneous breathing, we're going to need to do esophageal manometry. Uh, but in fact, we've now developed a cup and validated a couple of different easy non-invasive techniques for estimating transpulmonary driving pressure, the airway occlusion pressure, and this other maneuver that we call the expiratory occlusion pressure, which is a very simple maneuver Essentially, what I do is I'll apply an end expiratory hold, and when the patient takes a breath, they suck against the the occluded airway, and the resulting negative pressure deflection gives you a sense of how much pressure the patient's generating during their respiratory efforts. And we've actually validated this. It's surprisingly accurate and, and reliable. And so that actually gives you a pretty good sense of the pressure being generated to the lung by the muscles. And so now I think we actually have a pretty easy way of monitoring transpulmonary pressure non-invasively without even using a balloon as a way of guiding assisted spontaneous breathing. Um, So I I do think there's a a role for monitoring esophageal pressure in patients where you want to sort of monitor it continuously, but at least this technique gives us a way of of doing that relatively easily and non-invasively and still getting a sense for what the transpulmonary pressure is. Ewan, thanks very much for joining us and sharing your insights into what is still a dark art of intensive care practice. Uh, Thanks for your time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to hundreds of podcast interviews, modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler where you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.